Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is a milestone episode for us, <laughs> episode number 69 of Rizzo cast. Uh, and we are joined today by none other than someone who covers the twins for Access Twins. It is Brandon Warren joining the show. Brandon, what's going on? How you doing? <laughs> it's nice to be here. Emphasis on nice, but everything is great. It's a beautiful summer day. We're having pretty good weather in Minneapolis, and I'm excited to be on the show. Yeah, super excited to have you on, and, and we're going to get into a few things, and uh when I was coming up with, as there's a drive in the deep left field by Castellanos, and that will be yes. a home run. <laughs> uh, in case you guys don't know, Brandon is actually, uh, his claim to fame in the social media world is that he came up with uh, kind of a very, uh, it went viral. It was a clip that went viral. Uh, Brandon, mm -hmm. do you kind of want to explain what it was? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was actually just kind of up messing around on MLB The Show in fact, it was before I discovered how awesome Diamond Dynasty is. So we'll put that feature over because holy smokes, is that good? But I was messing around and I was actually on Twitter talking to Max Wildstein, who's one of the better MLB The Show players that I know anyway. And I said, dude, you should make a video of the Castellanos, Tom Brenneman thing. And he didn't do it. And so I was like, oh, what the heck? I'm going to try to do it. So I literally set up in my office like two 12 packs of soda prop my phone up to the screen and recreated the moment and then i dubbed the audio over it and i just kind of synchronized it up and the rest is history and almost two million views later here we are how, how many tries did that take because i feel like that took some and it wasn't it was it the same count too so how many tries did that take for you to get it actually so it was kind of funny i I'm going to admit to this. I just started the game with Greg Holland on the mound and, and Nick Castellanos batting. Mm. Unfortunately, the angle that I recorded at, and this wasn't intentional, did not have the score on the screen. So you can go back and look and see that. It literally took me 10 minutes to do the whole thing, though. I think, oh, yeah, no, if it would have taken hours, it would not have been worth it. But I think it was the fourth time through I synced everything up and managed to hit a home run because I was using two controllers. That was the other hard part was throwing the first, I threw the slider off the plate and I threw a fastball right down the middle, but Holland's reaction was perfect. The length of the clip as he's rounding the base was perfect. It just, it came out way better than I could have ever imagined. And again, 10 minutes of my life that while I'll never get it back, I'm still pretty happy. I did. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely something that I would do uh, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. So Brandon, we just, we just had the all-star game. Uh, and I know a lot of people look forward to kind of all-star week and the festivities that happen. And a lot of people like seeing their favorite players on the field being represented and the red carpet. And of course the home run derby and the game itself, what were kind of some impressions that uh, you saw from this, this week or the, the past few days? I mean, it brought some positivity to Colorado, which hasn't had much for baseball stuff lately. And you know, Shohei Otani obviously was kind of the big story, and I'm, I'm happy to see him get the notoriety he deserves after how much we've seen Mike Trout still kind of blend into the, the surroundings. Now, again, 
it probably helps that Trout is hurt that he's getting some more notoriety. But again, it is what it is. Otherwise, too, you know, I've I've grown up watching the All Star Game, and and so it appealed to me more as a younger person when I couldn't just flip a dial and watch the Los Angeles Dodgers play on any given night. So it'd be cool to see like Mike Piazza in the 1996 all-star game or whatever, but I still kind of the purest in me likes to see all these different guys mingling. And, and part of it too, is you see these superstars, you see the Vladimir Guerrero juniors coming up and, and that, and Fernando Tatis jr. But then you see the kind of one-off guys who might just be having a good half Omar Narvaez, um, Eduardo Escobar, who's a personal favorite of mine. I just love that, uh, that, that mixing of, of guys who are big time stars and guys who are having really good first halves. And uh, again, too, I'm glad it doesn't mean anything anymore. So they can just be more of a relaxed, fun atmosphere. Cause I think that's the spirit of all-star games. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you see Guerrero hitting the home run and Fernando Tatis jr. You know, with parting words as he passes shortstop and, you know, as you mentioned, you got the guys like Cedric Mullins, who are, are really good stories, having good first halves. Uh, what did you think about the microphones? Because I, I this is this was the number one thing on my timeline, and they've done it in years past, but like this was the 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 year where it was excessive. Like almost every inning, somebody was mic'd up, and I mean, I don't know who was thinking. I don't know what Fox was trying to get out of Liam Hendricks being mic'd up. Oh um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they were. I mean, did they even think about the FCC, you know, ramifications? I don't know what was going on there, but thank God they did because it turned out to be great content. What did you think about the microphones and, and the players being mic'd up and that element to it? Yeah, I I really don't have a problem with it when it's an exhibition game like this. I, I'm not so excited to hear from Dave Roberts in the eighth inning of a ALCS game or anything like that, or even a Fox saturday game of the week or whatever i just i don't think there's that much gained from from watching guys talk about the game while they're managing or playing the game but with that said the all-star game is that perfect environment for it and again you're trying to foster an environment of more fun unique content as far as drawing new fans and engaging younger fans and so i i think it's the right idea as long as again too it doesn't distract the players from you know making all the plays for instance I think the one inning Tatis had to make a play at the end of the inning while mic'd up and you couldn't tell he was even mic'd up. He made the play, didn't have to do much other than I think flip the ball to second base. So that, that I have no problem with. And these guys maintain their focus pretty well. So again, I, I really don't like it during meaningful games. And that's not so much of a thing as far as talking to players during meaningful games, but even the manager stuff is, just, I don't know, it doesn't do much for me. And it actually worked out pretty well because the uh, the I guess the numbers put the All Star Game ahead of the NBA All Star Game and the the Pro Bowl, so that ended up being kind of a bright spot. Um, Nelson Cruz and, and Taylor Rogers were there, and I know you you do a lot of twin stuff. I mean, they were the two representatives. How much of just kind of an overall picture on the Twins' first half? How much of a disappointment kind of has this season been for the people around the team and in the organization? Because I know, I mean, we were talking about, you know, maybe not the same level of talent as maybe the White Sox have, but the White Sox have been hurt a lot and the Twins just haven't been able to get a whole ton of things going. So what's kind of the disappointment level for them in the first half? Oh, it's a hundred out of a hundred. It's, it's 
such a situation where you look at the Mets and you look at the White Sox and a few other teams who have managed to still play well in the face of injuries to their key core players. The White Sox, especially because it's the same division and it's the same players position-wise in a lot of ways. I mean, Byron Buxton and Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez and, and, and all that. And it's, it's just so unbelievable that those teams have been able to soldier on. Now, again, the big difference there is pitching. The Twins have not had any in the Mets and, and the White Sox especially have had very good pitching. But there's just no reason for the Twins not to be hanging in that, you know, plus or minus three, four, five games of 500 range instead of opening the second half, 11 games under 500. It just it doesn't add up. And so people are are checking out pretty fast. I mean, Vikings training camp and all that's coming up pretty soon. And so there's going to be plenty of reason for, for fans to divert their attention elsewhere unless the Twins really make a run here coming up soon. And they open the second half with the Tigers. It'll be eight games in a row they played with the Tigers, four into the break, four out of the break, which is a really strange quirk. And then they've got a few against the White Sox. So they'll know what's what pretty quickly here out of the break if they have any chance of turning the season into even a, a respectable season, um, you know, let alone fighting for any kind of playoff spot. And I, I guess when, when teams start off this slow or, you know, have a bad season, I mean, unfairly or fairly, the attention automatically goes to the manager and, and Rocco Baldelli in this case, who I admire. I think that he's, he's, a, he's been a pretty good manager for the twins. Uh, I don't know what you think about him, but is his job safe or are they not at that point yet? No, he's, he's safe. He's there's, safe. there's no question about that. And the big thing for him is he's their hand-picked guy after they fired Paul Molitor and he won games at a 60% clip for his first two seasons. So I, I don't see any way that they're thinking about anything other than this is a blip on the radar, go get some pitching and take your chances again in 2022. Yeah, no, I I've never really, I mean, in some cases it works, I guess you want a culture change in your, in your clubhouse and with the way things are run, but Honestly, for a long time, I've been so down on managerial firings. I think they're very overrated. Mm -hmm. um, anyhow, the, the deadline's coming up, and, and I know Minnesota has some interesting pieces. I don't know what the plan is with them, if they want to sell or not, but who can you possibly see on this team uh, getting dealt? Yeah, honestly, I really only see the guys who are going to be free agents at the end of the year most likely moving. Byron Buxton is going to be on the shelf through the deadline or at least very close to it. And I think they want to take another run with him and Jose Barrios in 2022. Both are up for free agency after that. But um, other than that, you know, I think Hansel Robles is going to be on the block. Alex Colome, if someone is interested in taking him on, he's been okay since May 1st, nothing special, but someone might think they can turn him into, you know, something closer to what he's been before. Andrelton Simmons is probably going to be flipped. He'll give someone a nice defensive boost on the stretch. He's given the Twins almost nothing offensively, though. And then the tough one is Nelson Cruz. Do the Twins want to move him? Does he want to go play somewhere where he'll have a chance at that ring that's eluded him now for a, a really long career? I mean, he, he came up in, I think, 2005 or 2006. So, I mean... He's been around a long time. He's played in the World Series with the Rangers, but never gotten there. Is he going to want to chase that, or is he going to be okay with sticking around and mentoring a lot of young players? And I think that they'll probably lean towards the trade option because I think teams like Tampa Bay and, and even those same White Sox could be interested in, in his services down the stretch here. 
yeah, definitely interested to see where Nelson Cruz ends up. Back to Barrios here. I mean, he if available, and I, I say that very, you know, speculatively, if available, he would most definitely be the hottest commodity on on the on the trade market when it comes to starting pitchers. Because right now you see a lot of the Danny Duffy's and the Robbie Ray's and the, you know, Max Scherzer mm-hmm. probably not going to be available. Maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, he would definitely be the most, I mean, controllable, young, good. I mean, what, what would it take for a team like the Dodgers or the Padres who, you know, LA just lost Clayton Kershaw. They've lost Dustin May. They've lost Trevor Bauer. And, you know, the Padres mm-hmm. have lost, they have no confidence, I don't think, in uh, Denelson Lamont's health. And, you know, Darvish went on the shelf. Snell went on the shelf. What would it take for these teams or maybe any other team to maybe get a legitimate offer in for Barrios? Yeah, it's going to be expensive because the marketplace right now is flush with guys who are like number four, number five starters, just kind of guys who can turn over your rotation. and. Even if you really like Danny Duffy, he's he's making quite a bit of money. Uh, he's a free agent at the end of the year, and it's pretty hard to buy into the fact that he's that much different than he's been the last few years. So all of those things kind of conspire against him to suggest he probably won't bring back a huge haul. In Barrios's favor, favor, excuse me, is he's you know he's young, he's under control through next year. He's not going to make a crazy amount of money through arbitration, no matter what happens. And he's good. You know, he's, he's just, he's really good. And there are going to be teams too, that will see his pitch profile and all that and think maybe we can be the team that turn him from a nice number two into a legit bona fide ace. And you're not going to want to pay for that, but in a lot of ways, the twins can kind of extort that sort of value because the teams that are going to be interested too are going to be flush with prospects, especially Toronto comes to mind with Austin Martin and Jordan Grosshands and probably not so much Alec Manoa now that he's in the big leagues, but Simeon Woods, Richardson and, and uh, Nate Pearson, you know, they've got a lot of guys that check those boxes for what the twins would probably be looking for in terms of high end talent. And so what we've become accustomed to for trades for players with years of control or a year of control left, like the Francisco Lindor deal, which kind of underwhelmed all of us. Um, I think that narrative is going to be blown up because of the fact that the, the scarcity of a pitcher like Barrios in this marketplace. So I think it's going to be very, very hard for the twins to find a deal that's to their liking, unless the Dodgers really push their chips in and say, listen, Dustin May's hurt, but we'll be willing to trade him in return for Barrios or something like where the Blue Jays say, yeah, you know, our offense is set. We're not going to need Austin Martin and Jordan Grosshands. So we're going to borrow from that surplus to go get what we need in terms of pitching. It's, it's a narrow band and it's going to take, as I wrote a, a couple of weeks ago, a perfect storm. But I think the twins have to listen to what teams are willing to do. Yeah. And, and say there's a situation where, you know, they lock up Burrios and they, and maybe even Byron Buxton too, and they they go for it in these next few years. What would what would they need to do to kind of get back into playoff contention next season, or maybe the season after? What would they need to add to uh, to benefit the uh, or 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 is this you know downfall kind of a longer term process? No, I don't think it is because I think the the fair portion of their core is still pretty young, and they have mm-hmm. a lot of guys who are graduating as prospects in terms of Kirilov, Larnick, 
hopefully eventually Royce Lewis and Johan Duran and, and a few other guys. So they're, they're really going to have to iron out their rotation because Michael Pineda is a free agent at the end of the year. They're going to obviously lose J-Half. They don't care about that. But it's basically Ken Tomaeda, who is in his 30s. Jose Brios is a free agent at the end of next year. And then a bunch of young guys. you got Duran, Balazovic, and a bunch of other. Uh, Blaine Enloe, who's on the shelf with Tommy John now. Basically, the, the Twins are a team that was hurt, especially by the canceled 2020 minor league season in the sense that their pitching that was all likely going to develop to within the cusp of the big leagues or even into the big leagues all took a step backwards in terms of preparation. And so what they're going to have to do in terms of addressing their rotation next year is they're probably going to have to sign two guys and probably still identify a sleeper type that they like to, whether it's a, a John Gray or an Eduardo Rodriguez or that kind of pitcher where you're not going to have to pay 100% market value for what they can become. Kind of what I had hoped the Twins could have done with Kevin Gaussman this offseason before he accepted the QO. So th they've got a lot of questions. I think you sign Barrios. I think you keep Maeda and you're, that's your top two. And then you probably want to bring Pineda back. You can kind of hope on someone like Duran Balazovic, Randy Dobnak to fill out one of those spots. And then, yeah, you got to hit on some kind of guy that needs to bounce back, whether it's a, a guy who's lost his way or a guy who had some pedigree and has not figured out the pitch mix or consistency, something like that. So they're going to have to get creative. They, they've wanted to make a trade for a really good starter for quite a while. And I know one of those guys was Zach Gallen back in the day, and it just didn't work out. So they're obviously open-minded to a lot of things, but it's going to start with starting pitching. The bullpen, they're going to have to fix up too, but they're going to be a lot different with that. They, they, love and, they love going and getting kind of the guys who are off the beaten path. Like Luke Farrell was really pitching well for them, and Derek Law has looked better of late. They, they're not so much tied up in the big money relievers. They're, they're going to have to really make um, improvements with their rotation. And then that alone will allow the bullpen to kind of let the, the sea level rise because they won't throw so many innings. Yeah. And, and I, I, uh, just a side note here, I, I cover the, the giants for, uh, you know, twice a homestand freelance and, mm -hmm. uh, the talk around them is, is how the pitching staff is, is, you know, everybody's leaving after this year. Everybody's, you know, pretty much a free agent after this season, Gosman and Disclafani and wood and, uh, maybe the twins could go after one of them. Uh, also Derek law, former giant. So mm -hmm, uh, yeah, nice, nice name drop there. Uh, let's look at the the full picture here, kind of around the league. I know the all-star break is, is over and this is where, you know, MLB is marketed as to, you know, giving the label. Okay. It's a foot race now. Like that, that's what we are now at this point. Uh, and even more so after the deadline, so what are mm -hmm. kind of some of the storylines? What are some of the things that you'll be looking forward to in the second half as far as the entire league goes? Anything stick out to you? Well, I'm always curious how fast starters will keep up and if slow starters will turn things around. You know, Seattle is a team that comes to mind. I mean, they're five games over 500, but I don't know if they even believe they're that good yet. I know Jared Kellenick is coming up after the break here and they're going to see what they have. Hopefully he hits the ground running a little better this time around the last time, but obviously the, the talent is there. I'm curious to see how San Francisco does too. I mean, can they hold off not only the Dodgers, but the Padres, both teams who are forecasted to do big things. 
and instead the Giants have, have kind of done what they do. They've gotten some pitching. They've had a few guys pop up and play better than has been expected. I think Lamont Wade Jr. is one of those guys. Um, shout to Lamont, one of, my, one of my guys from the Twins days. Absolutely terrific guy. And if, uh, if you get a chance to, to talk to him, you'll have to let him know that, uh, that I sent you. But uh, I, am, I am really excited to see if Milwaukee can hang on. Cincinnati's playing well. Can the Braves get back into it? I still think the Braves, even without Acuna, are a solid team. And so, honestly, it's um, – I'm mostly looking at team stuff. Player stuff is – it can change so fast. So, for me, it, it's all about who's trending in what direction at this point of the year. Lamont Wade Jr., I will tell him that you sent me. Uh, but, no, Lamont Wade Jr., let, let's touch on him for a second because he's been – quite the revelation and they made this move. And at the time, the giants really didn't have a set bullpen and Sean Anderson, you know, was a guy that looked to be possibly like a future setup guy. His stuff mm-hmm. was kind of flat the last season he pitched, but, and Lamont Wade jr. Was, you know, a guy that was added into a mix of outfielders with Alex Dickerson and Austin Slater and all these other guys. And there really wasn't room for him. And then he comes up and, uh, wasn't a huge power guy, but I think the thing that Farhan Zaidi liked about him was if you look at the minor league stats, he had more walks than hits and that's been his, his tool. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden he's hitting for power and he's doing really well for this team. And when Brandon belt went down, he started playing some first base a position he's never played regularly before. So, I mean, was this foreseen when he was a Minnesota twin? Was there always kind of something to unlock there with Lamont Wade jr. Um, the discipline was always there. It was just a matter of if he was going to drive the baseball. And, you know, we look at where we're at at this point in terms of plate appearances and sample size and all that. And maybe it's not going to stick, but you can't take away what's already happened. I think that's the thing we forget about when we try to assume players are going to correct their course is, yeah, he might not be hitting at his true talent level, but that's all going to be lifted up by the fact that he started off so hot. And a lot of Twins fans have lamented that the Twins could use him with Buxton hurt and Kepler dealt with some injuries and they don't have Eddie Rosario anymore. But Rob Ref Snyder stepped in and played well before he got hurt. Kyle Garlick was kind of playing his role too. And Jake Cave literally had a broken back when on the 60-day IL. So it would have taken a whole lot for Lamont Wade to get a fair crack here. And it was pretty obvious to see that the Twins again had to make something happen in the bullpen. The, the more lamentable thing was that Anderson hit waivers and was claimed by the Rangers. And so the twins had nothing to show for that. And, uh, you know, I think actually the Rangers probably sent him through waivers again, a couple days later. So it, it is what it is. There's nothing, there's nothing much you can do about the past and, and the trade made sense at the time, but boy, Wade has, has really figured things out for the giants. And it's good to see. Yeah. I think Sean Anderson is now a Oriole. So, which is kind of interesting. Oh. And I know, um, there was a, an incident with him where I like he had a fastball up and in that came in on Mike Trout or something and Joe Madden yelled at him and it was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, Lamont Wade Jr. in his career, here's an interesting note, no hits against left-handed pitching in his career. So that's... Whoa, I, I, yeah, see, I didn't know that. I, <laughs> I'm a big Lamont Wade guy. Like I like Lamont Wade Jr. And I think he's a great dude. Wow, zero hits against... Uh, have you tweeted that? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to see if you've tweeted that and retweeted because that's that's crazy. 
Yeah, I tweeted it during one of the games. I mean, it was like, I mean, it's a small sample size and the way Gabe Kapler has, I mean, if you're, if you're on the roster, you're going to play. I mean, that's just kind of how Gabe Kapler uses his bench. I mean, it, it's, it's a really, it's a bench that comes in. I mean, you'd expect most national league benches to come in and like, you know, pinch it four in the seventh and double switch that double switch this, but when there's a scoring opportunity and, and there's a chance to pinch hit for like Alex Dickerson or something, Austin Slater's being used. So they're really short to the punch with, with, uh, with guys with the bat, uh, with guys with the bat, of course, with, uh, you know, the splits. So Lamont Wade, not a hit against left-handed pitching in his major league career. So uh, definitely crazy. Uh, and <laughs> crazy. And it, it's just a testament of, of, I think of it now as the Jock Peterson syndrome because in LA they never let him play against lefties, and then, you know, when he signed with the the Cubs, the big hoopla around it was that he's going to get to play every day. And um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Honestly, I don't think it's. I I don't know. I don't know, Jock. I guess it's not a good thing because I mean, now we're seeing why. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to bounce around here because. Uh, I, I do a lot of, you know, just random stuff here on this show. Um, I want to go back to Otani here because I know the comparisons of, of Babe Ruth are, are pretty valid. Uh, I know, uh, you know, he I think Otani literally did everything possible at the All-Star game, hit home runs in the Derby, got the win, pitched an inning, 500 foot home run, everything. Mm-hmm. Kind of did that in the first half, too. But describe how good this guy is and, and what you've seen from him. Because I feel like as a baseball community, we're not taking in enough of what this guy's doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible what he's doing offensively. I mean, he's one of the very best pure hitters, 33 home runs. Even just looking at that still floors me. 33 home runs. I thought he'd pitch. I really did. I thought he'd be a great pitcher, and I thought the hitting – when I first watched his swing, I thought it looked a little long. And so maybe he'd struggle with velocity, especially up. But, boy, he has calmed those worries and then some. And, you know, on the mound, he's been he's been solid as well. He's, you know, he's not exactly been as good as you'd want for somebody who's starting the all-star game on the mound. But at the same time, I mean, man, the total package, it's, it's Babe Ruth in his um, you know, early, early, early portion of his career. And he's, he's really been impressive. And Joe Buck pointed this out during the all-star game. And it was a great point. Babe Ruth only did it like two years, full-time two years. Right. So, so, I mean, basically what he's doing is what we've never seen before. I mean, I know um, somebody wrote an article about uh, this. It's been done in the Negro leagues prior. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe those guys are his, his best comparison, but do you see like maybe him picking one or the other down the road? I mean, nobody wants to think about that now because it's awesome what he's doing, but is there a chance that he could pick one or the other? I kind of thought he'd probably end up picking pitching just because of the value in pitching compared to, you know, how the rest of the game kind of seems to value offense, but he's just been so good offensively that it's hard for me to see him scrapping that. And the Angels need pitching so badly. They, they've, um, you know, they've had such issues with keeping guys' elbows healthy, especially that I just can't see it right now. And again, you know, he's, he's in his age 26 season and just turned 27 a few days ago. I don't know, man. I think you just, uh, I think you just got to keep riding the wave. And if he doesn't stay healthy, it's, 
it is what it is. You know, you got to let the human body kind of handle things as uh, as it does. They still have him under pretty cheap club control for like three more years. So I think they'll just get what they can out of him and hope for the best. And this is the perfect year because I don't think the the Angels are really doing anything. But this is the perfect year to figure out his schedule. I know in the past it's like, okay, pitch once a week. How are we going to work him in as a DH? And I think down the road, we might even see some outfield work for <laughs> Shohei Otani. And I, I mean, I saw uh, something about, oh, maybe he could be a closer, but that would be problematic yeah. because what if the game's on the line in the ninth inning and he's due up third and yeah. should be warming up. So it's like, it's kind of a, a, a really tricky spot, but definitely I think they're, they're getting his schedule cemented and, and what they want to do long-term. Um mm-hmm. Let, let's bring up your podcast because I know you got something going on here coming out. I and it's. Do you want to kind of describe what it is? So I don't know. I was kicking around an idea of a nostalgia-based podcast because I listened to this wrestling podcast called Eighty Three Weeks that is largely nostalgia-based around wrestling, and so that that show's blown up. And I thought, well, why can't we do something like that about baseball? And so. You know, I grew up watching 1990s baseball, and I thought, what better way to capitalize on that than to find someone who played in that era and compare my notes of what I thought I saw and what I thought I experienced from what he actually went through. And so it was a matter of finding the right player. And I first I asked Paul Molitor because I covered him as a manager with the Twins, and he thought it was a good idea, but he just couldn't commit to the time. And so... Then I moved on to Greg Olson, who was a reliever for a bunch of different teams from the late 80s to the early 2000s. Probably the most famous thing he ever did related to the Giants was walk intentionally Barry Bonds with the bases loaded. So he played for Bobby Cox. He played for Buck Showalter. He played for Frank Robinson. All kinds of, I think Davey Johnson was another one. He played for some really well-known um, managers. He did some broadcasting, so he's not going to be a fish out of water in terms of talking about things. He was a Team USA guy. He was drafted like fourth overall out of Auburn. He just checks a lot of the boxes for what we're going to want to get from a guy remembering the 90s. And since he played in both leagues, you know, he would have faced, like I said, Barry Bonds and, and Ken Griffey Jr. and Kirby Puckett and all these different guys that I'm going to want to ask him about. And then I think what we're going to do is a, a little bit of a like a meet and greet podcast next week, just kind of get to know him, get to know me, anybody who's never listened to any of my shows. And then the MLB strike from 1994 is going to be one of our first episodes because we're coming up on the anniversary of that. In fact, we're about a month away from the 27th anniversary. And then we'll talk about like replacement players and, and labor strife and what that was like canceling of the world series, what it meant to the expos to, obviously have that team kind of blown up after that with Pedro Martinez and, and Larry Walker and all that. So we had a lot of, lot of meat and uh, a lot of meat on the bone as far as content. So it's exciting to get started and I'm hopeful it'll take off because there's a lot of people who've expressed curiosity and interest in it. Awesome. That that's great. What, what kind of, what kind of piqued your interest when it came to 1990s baseball, because you're going to hate me for this, but I was born in 2002 so not surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> little 19 years old, little, uh, yeah. little, little past uh, 1990s baseball, but man, I looking back at the, and I, I love baseball history. So I, I go back, mm-hmm. I actually just read a book. I got it. I got it right here. It's called the game. And it actually talks about the, the 94 strike 
uh, and and Bud Selig and George Steinbrenner and all those characters. Um, I probably look- have that on my bookshelf here somewhere. I'm I'm not seeing it at this second, but I got a lot of stuff on my bookshelf. Anyhow, yeah, um, yeah. How, how did you kind of? Because I mean, I look back at that era and I go, "Wow, that that must have been a fun era." I mean, steroids aside, just just for a second, uh, yeah, yeah, which was fun, by the way. Uh, Ken mm-hmm. Griffey Jr. with the backwards hat, and and if you really look at it, the '90s were the was the the real origin. It was a small origin of what we're seeing now with the whole let let the kids play type thing. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it was it was just a really cool era looking back from my point of view, what, what kind of, I mean, you lived through it. What did you, what did you like most about it? Well, I was eight in 1993 when I started watching and 93 was kind of the end of the early portion of that decade where like, if you hit 20 homers, you were having a really good year. And then we hit like 94 and Griffey started blowing up and Matt Williams and all these guys started blowing up. Um, You know, obviously bonds. And I think, Juan Gonzalez hit like 46 homers each in 93, but it wasn't a power centric game like it became. And now it is, but I think you always remember the game as you were brought up on it. And so even though I have a strong appreciation for the sabermetric concepts and analytical concepts that rule the game today, I have a strong enjoyment and appreciation for how I learned the game before I read the book of Moneyball when I was your age, you know? So I, I have a fond memory of watching metronome era twins teams that would lose 95 games every year. So for me, it's just going to be going back to my comfort zone and that way it's not going to be that hard to prepare. You know, I'm going to have to learn more about the strike in terms of what it actually meant because when I was eight years old, the the strike just meant there wasn't going to be a, a world series or a last few months of the season. And so for me, that meant, a premature end to Kent Herbeck's career, it didn't mean the players are holding out for the money that they think they deserve or they want more um, concessions in the CBA in terms of uh, rights and that sort of thing. So it's going to be kind of a mix of blending the concepts that I didn't really know as a kid to what I do know now as an adult and then running it by a guy who lived it. I think that's just going to be the perfect mix of uh a lot of different things that's going to give us content for, for years. Absolutely. Sounds like a great mix and uh, can't, can't wait to, uh, to listen to it. Um, and a few more things before we wrap up here, but I, I woke up this morning and I looked at uh, Twitter as I always do. And um, I, I mean, you, you got in a, a little scuffle with some, some people about mm. Pete Rose and yikes uh, and w- whether I guess he should be forgiven, reinstated, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, what is, what is your argument, uh, against that happening? Because I kind of feel the same way I feel. And my main thing is that I really don't think that he's fixed anything at all. I think he's just living the exact same way he lives. I still think he bets on sports. He said it the last time. I mean, the commissioner asked him straight up last time he tried to get reinstated and, uh, reinstated and he was denied. Are you still betting on baseball? And he said, yeah. And it really screwed him. He, he even admitted, he's like, oh God, I probably shouldn't have said that. So I don't think he's changed at all. He's got some other weird things against him that, you know, possibly criminal at the time. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that Pete Rose did wrong. And I understand the argument that all of his stuff is in the Hall of Fame and, you know, <laughs> but uh, it, it's also a museum. It's not necessarily a, uh, a fraternity like all these guys. Well, it is for them, but 
You get my point. But what is kind of your yeah. argument against Rose being in the uh, in, in Cooperstown or even being uh, uh, hailed upon, I guess? I mean, gambling is the kind of cardinal sin in professional sports, the baseball especially. He used it in a way that affected other people's livelihoods. Mario Soto comes to mind, but possibly even Cal Daniels and Eric Davis in terms of how they were used and not used and, and all that sort of thing. And honestly, I mean, he chose to accept the punishment as opposed to continue to fight it. He was dishonest about it for a very long time instead of just taking his punishment out of the chute. And then, yeah, there's the talk of him being, um, you know, having relationships with underage girls. I mean, it just, it's a confluence of messy spots, messy situations that to me just make me feel confident that he doesn't need to be in the Hall of Fame is he's acknowledged as the hit king he's acknowledged as a big part of the big red machine he's acknowledged as a lot of things but i don't think he has to be enshrined as a as a human being if if he doesn't meet the character clause that uh the bbwa has put forward now again i i I hear the argument there's a lot of nasty dudes in the hall of fame already and do you really want to throw them out honestly i don't have a problem with it if you want to start picking guys out and throwing them out but you also have to adjust for the context of the time i mean cap anson was racist but uh, mm-hmm. you know he was he was also pretty much just like anybody else back then that america is a messed up place that has evolved a lot and still has more evolving to do so it's a it's a dicey issue it's a tough decision but if if that's the route people want to go i really don't have a problem with it you can throw roberto alomar out of the hall of fame for all i care you can throw any number of guys out. It's just a matter of two wrongs don't make a right. You can't just tell me, hey, this bad guy's in the Hall of Fame, so why can't Pete Rose be? If I can, if I can make one right decision rather than two wrong decisions, I'm going to do it every time. 100%. Uh, and speaking of the Hall of Fame, and this is an awful segue to go from one guy <laughs> to a complete opposite of, of that guy, do you think Joe Mauer gets in? Because I know <laughs> that's such a bad segue from Pete Rose to Joe Mauer. All good. All good. Um, do you think Joe Mauer gets in? Because I mean, I mean, we're gonna. I'm flooded with with but with Buster Posey and his resurgence and the talk about that. Uh, but Joe Mauer right now is probably the closest catcher to getting in the Hall of Fame that is not in and that will appear on a ballot coming up here shortly. Because I mean, his definitely the the numbers are up there. He had a really good prime and i know a lot of people are going to say well he didn't put up some of the stuff at you know he, he did a lot at first base which is true but he also did a lot mm-hmm. at catcher uh a one team guy and for yep. me the one team guys really stick out because i mean there's not a lot of them and it, it just makes your case stronger in a weird way like i think it really hurt fred mcgriff that he was identified yep. with like a million different teams unfairly but it's kind of the reality gary sheffield i think it hurt a lot I think he should definitely be getting more consideration instead of being like in the kind of the Sammy Sosa vote total area. Uh, but what do you think about Joe Mauer and his, his hall of fame case here? Yeah, it's actually funny. I had a mailbag a couple of weeks ago where I addressed Posey versus Mauer. And I said, put them both in because Mauer actually only caught at that point. I think he was a hundred and some games behind Posey in terms of career games caught. And in a way, Posey's resurgence now is what Maurer never was able to do. So I'm putting Posey in, obviously, even if he hadn't had this resurgence. I just think the, the company catchers keep 
um, some alliteration there. Uh, the, the company catcher's keep is just so minimal in terms of high end talent. I don't think if I'm not mistaken, Johnny bench, I don't even think has a hundred career fan grabs war where a lot of positions have guys 150 and above. So when you account for other players around them and, and what they accomplished, yeah, bench was 74.8. I think Mauer's in the fifties and I think Buster's in the high fifties. So, um, it's just a matter of how do they compare to their contemporaries. And for me, both of those guys are right there. And there's really no doubt in my mind. I mean, you look at transcendent catchers over the last 25 or 30 years, and it's those two guys, um, you know, depending on how you view Russell Martin, Brian McCann, and, you know, other than that, it's mashers like Mike Piazza. So for me, it's it's an obvious yes as far as uh, putting Maurer and and um, and Posey into the Hall of Fame. I, I have no problem with it at all. Yeah, and I was thinking about doing like a top ten at each position of you know at each position and a series like that or something. But you know, looking down those lists, I mean, Victor Martinez even finds his way on there. I know he DH'd a lot of it, but I mean, you you'll end up in some weird wormholes if you go down at some of the active players and go, wow, that guy's having a good career or you know, has had a good career, like Zach Greinke. I mean, I think he's got more baseball reference war than, or it's close between him and Clayton Kershaw, which is wild and him and Justin Verlander, which is wild. So, I mean, definitely there's, there's a lot of players that we reflect back on and go, wow, that guy might be a hall of famer or might be a borderline hall of famer. But for me, I think you're either in or you're not uh, mm-hmm. enough with the, Oh, he's not going to get in first ballot. Uh, before we go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, before we go, um, I want to get your thoughts real quick here on, on some of these rules that have been implemented the past few years. I know the runner on second base to start extra innings is the biggest one. What do you think about that? I'd rather see it. Uh, it's growing on me in the sense that I don't hate that it could be used at some point, but I don't like it being used in the 10th inning. I want it to be the 11th or the 12th. Give me a couple regular innings before we go to the shootout, like in hockey and hockey too. You know, they're, was it three on three and then the shootout? So honestly, give me give me regular baseball for two more innings, and then we can do the Mickey Mouse finish. <laughs> it's fine with me. But I I'm not saying I want to romanticize being there at the park till 1 a.m. in a 22 inning game. It's kind of cool every now and then. But I'm fine with uh, you know in the 12th inning. Let's let's speed this thing up. What about the seven inning doubleheaders? Hate it. I, I thought I. I thought I would hate it and I don't like it. It's just, um, I don't know. It's not baseball. I know you got to protect pitching and all that, but that's what the 27th man is supposed to do. Bring up a guy from AAA who can make a start. I think the twins are doing that um, Friday with Charlie Barnes, who's going to make his big league debut a lefty from Clemson. And so, you know, I, uh, I think that's what the 27th man is for is, is for added protection. I would rather you add an extra two players, a starter and a reliever, than shorten games by multiple innings because it's just not the spirit of how baseball should be played. That would be wild if, if a pitcher goes into an arbitration case like Madison Bumgarner and says, hey, I threw a shutout this year. That should count for something. And then the, the arbitrator goes, yeah, it was a seven-inning seven game. Uh, that'd be wild. And last but not least, I'm iffy on this, but I still don't have an opinion on the shift. I think I see both sides of it. I see the crowd that says – defenses should be aligned however they want to be aligned like bill belichick 
you know, could put his defenders wherever he wants and the batter should learn to hit the ball the other way. But that is an interesting point. And I think the people against, you know, are for banning the shift would say, well, we've said that for so many years now, but it's not happening. And, and guys, instead of trying to hit the ball through the shift, they've now resorted to hitting the ball over the shift. And that's why there's more strikeouts. That's why there's more home runs. And, you know, that's what's happening now. So what do you think about the, the shift? Because I could go either way on it. Um, I, I guess what I'm curious is how much data we need to have to know what, when players have decided to no longer hit against it. You know what I mean? As far as could there be a pendulum swing here in the next three to five years where um, hitters continue to trend new guys coming up who might be in triple A or now or our rookies alter their swings and the landscape of the league changes drastically. Like have we given it enough time to the point where we can be certain that they will never ever make that adjustment. And I, I look at the landscape of the game and I can see why people would say yes, but at the same time too, change is not, uh, change does not happen overnight in baseball. And there are going to be guys whose careers depend on it. I mean, I think if a guy goes five years and he never, ever learns to hit against a shift and hits 220 with limited power, doesn't it, you know, at that point, and he's out of the big leagues, he's going to do whatever it takes to stick around with his second chance. And there's going to be guys who see their games of hit out of his mold that will say, listen, this is what I need to do differently coming up to, um, to stick in the big leagues. So I think the evolution of the game still has to play out. If that makes sense. You still have to let this kind of go to the point where, you know, if we're seeing home runs and strikeouts continue to rise five years from now, then it's more of an issue like the next CBA, this CBA, leave it as it is. I still think you need um, more time to let the data kind of shake out. And the, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a real smart math guy. So that probably already disproves my point in terms of the, the smart people at MLB knowing the data, but I need more time to see what, um, what players are going to do adjustment wise over the next three to five seasons. Yeah. And when I think of the shift, I think of two careers ending Ryan Howard. I think we'd be talking about him much more differently and mm -hmm. definitely Jay Bruce too. So mm -hmm. two guys that, you know, arguably had their careers ended by the shift. And the funniest shift thing, the funniest thing about the shift is that I would go to games and, and I'd watch, Evan Longoria play on the right of second base and Brandon Crawford have that left side and nobody's in the vicinity of third base and Johnny Cueto's throwing fastballs away. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's going on here? Like nobody's on the same page. Uh, I don't know how much that happens, but uh, definitely uh, interesting considering your defense is doing the complete opposite of how you're attacking the hitter, uh, which is yeah. great. Um, Brandon, I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and thanks. Thanks for uh, joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Anytime you, uh, just let me know. Absolutely. You guys could follow Brandon on Twitter. His handle is at Brandon underscore Warren W A R N E. Again, he covers the twins for access twins. And again, that podcast is coming out soon. Do you want to, what, what's the name of it again? 
that 90s baseball pod. And if people were already subscribed to Midwest Swing, my previous baseball podcast, everything's going to transition over and it's going to be all a, a smooth transition. So if people are already su- subscribed, just sit tight. We'll have some big things coming here in the next week or so. Go check that out. I will also subscribe. Uh, I should have been subscribed already, but I will go check it out as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, better late than never. <laughs> better late than never. All right. And of course, you guys can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steven Risotto, R-I-S-S-O-T-T-O. Thank you guys for listening and have a great day.